0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the IBM Developer Podcast. We are your hosts, Justin Horsall, and the amazing Luke Chance.
1: Thank you for introducing us, Justin. It is a pleasure to be here and to talk with you about technology.
0: Yeah, and we're going to get into containers this time, aren't we?
1: Yes, Justin, we are going to explore containers, and we're going to do it with the best container experts I could find, Phil Estes and Liz Rice. Phil Estes is a IBM Distinguished Engineer... And he's working on the Container D project.
0: Mm -hmm. Nice. And what about Liz Rice?
1: Liz Rice is from Aqua Security, and she is also on the Technical Oversight Committee of the Cloud Native Computing Foundation.
0: Oh, and Luke, apart from all of this exciting stuff, we're also going to talk about bicycles, right? People at home don't know this because, you know, they're just listening to this. But I love cycling, and I even cycled over to the studio today in the rain... That's how much I like cycling. And we're going to get into cycling in the podcast too.
1: I'm with Phil Estes and Liz Rice, and we are at KubeCon Barcelona 2019.
2: Yeah, really good. Super excited to be here. Now it's, you know, it's started. It's very <laughs> good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I think we were just saying right? It's 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 much larger this year. It's almost doubled in size from last year.
2: Yeah, in Copenhagen it was about 4,500 people and we're 7,700 I think here. Just shy of 8,000 anyway. So almost, I mean it's not quite double but it's pretty close and that is phenomenal. It's very similar number to how many were in Seattle just in. Is that
3: November,
2: December? December,
1: December, December. yeah, early December. Yeah. So what's going on with the Open Container Initiative, with Container D, with Moby? Help us differentiate and see the landscape. What's going on with these things and why are they important?
3: The hard part is keeping that to a short story because it, it's uh, been an interesting ride through Docker's rise 2014-2015 as containers are going to be everything. We're going to package everything in containers, which again, Docker did some amazing things to really reach developers with the simplicity of these tools that everyone got very comfortable with. And of course, as enterprises started to think about how do I deliver this? How do I do it in a highly available way? Google brought Kubernetes as kind of the answer to the orchestration side of that problem, which there are others out there, Mesos and Nomad and other other technologies that have existed or pre-existed. Dan had a
2: list of about 80 of them in the keynote this
3: morning. Yeah so the keynote kind of gave us that history of all all the ways enterprises and vendors have tried to solve this challenge of now that I have containers everywhere how do I deliver them and and put them on a platform and and make it available and, and logging and monitoring everything that goes with that security. So the OCI was formed kind of as those things started to mature to make sure that no one vendor kind of controlled the ideas of what is a container, what is a container image. I'm a fairly optimistic guy, so I think the OCI has really brought us to a good place where we have some competing runtimes, we have some competing options really all over the stack, but everyone agreeing that a container looks like this and how we run a container looks like this has made it to where we really don't have these significant operability problems that have have happened in other ecosystems in the last couple of decades. So I think the OCI has put us in a great spot of we all agree on what a container is and how to run them. And so even as the landscape gets bigger, the way people package and build containers, you can use different tools and we can all run them and share them and, and we're and, in a good and, spot.
2: And it's a good thing to have more than one option for the for the runtime, and it's a good thing to have more than one option for many bits of the stack. Sure. It maybe is a little bit confusing, but it also means, you know, you don't have to have one size fits all for everything. Um, so, yep. so for example, Cryo recently joined the CNCF, yep. and uh, we already had Containerd, Rocket. So, having those different projects as part of the community is a good thing.
3: Yep.
1: Do you find that they're pushing each other, not competition per se, but that they push the boundaries and they help change each other?
3: The good thing about the OCI is it has brought together what would be competing organizations, competing vendors, and agreed on this common layer. And those discussions can not necessarily get heated, but there's strong opinions, there's different ideas. But the OCI has allowed for building that stable layer so people can innovate, which in a, in a sense is kind of that pushing idea of not just keeping each other honest, but also multiple registries, multiple runtimes has really caused each other to, to make sure that stability, performance, security, you don't want to be the non-performant runtime or the non-performant registry or the non-secure registry. So to have that competition is healthy in the sense of Driving strong, you know, feature sets yeah. and, and stability and performance.
2: And then there's all those kind of different sandbox runtimes as well. We were yeah. chatting about on the way into the venue this morning about, you know, Firecracker and Nabbler and and GVisor and, and all these different options around sandboxing the runtime.
3: Yeah, so maybe listeners will have heard some of those terms. So containers are a Linux creation. The Linux kernel offers us a set of ways to isolate a software process. But as researchers and others have debated or discussed the security model of that environment, there's been this idea, well, we could actually wrap that in further layers. So GVisor is one idea to do that. Nabla and, and others use... Other technologies, and then lightweight virtualization, so Mm. CATA containers, Firecracker.
2: So a regular container, well, a set of regular containers running on a machine are all sharing the same kernel, and that can be seen as a, a, you know, I don't know how to quite say it without saying it's a risk. There is a risk that some kind of escape could happen within that shared kernel. So the idea of all these sandboxing technologies is to find ways to isolate... The kernel parts of what's happening for each container um, to make yep. that risk of escape from across the container boundary less and less likely. Yep. So I, I find that kind of area pretty, pretty interesting. Yep. What are
1: some of the most common vulnerabilities that people are going to encounter? Or where should they start to get the foundation of what they need to know to be able to deploy containers securely?
2: I work for a security vendor at Core Security. And so we get quite a lot of exposure to what customers and, and potential customers want, you know, what they're worried about. And the thing is, containers go through a life cycle. You start with a container image and you want to check that you don't have vulnerable packages inside that image. Because one of the problems is you instead of having like maybe one machine image, you could have hundreds or thousands of different container images. So having an automated process so you can check for vulnerable dependencies becomes a real thing. You know, you've got to do it in an automated fashion when you are using containers. Right through the whole life cycle through to runtime protection where I think one of the interesting things about containerization is in the same way that you decompose a software architecture into potentially microservices, and you've got these components that do a thing, you know, each component doing one job, that gives us a boundary that we can add security around. So uh, one of the really nice things that we do is around the runtime protection where you can learn what's the executable that's supposed to be running inside this container, or what two or three. Most containers are not running many processes. They're often only running one or a small number of processes. So if you ever see something outside of the ordinary running in a container, that's kind of a red flag. And the ability to decompose the security problem like that and have these isolated things that you can look at and reason about what expected behaviour is I think there's a real advantage of containers from a security perspective compared to the traditional sort of machine or VM model
3: yeah I think that's probably a big change that we've seen from traditional either VM or even bare metal, running your web server and your database and all all these applications on a single system is knowing how to reason about whether something bad is happening Mm. was much harder than what you're talking about the container world. If this container always acts like this, anytime it doesn't act like that, I know probably something is happening that's either malicious or just broken. Yes, Um, yes. So... Yeah, I I think that's a pretty strong message for containerization and how we can secure applications that wasn't quite as easy in the prior world. Mm.
2: I think in the traditional world, we kind of looked at security as a kind of perimeter and and a a lot of focus on network security, which is valuable. I'm not in any way dismissing that, but we now have these opportunities to add extra layers of defenses. And... uh, that's, that's yeah. got to be a win. <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: I'd like to hear a little bit about how the ecosystem works around open source and containers. Who are the stakeholders? How do they participate? Who are the big guys? Who are the little guys? How does it fit together?
2: You go to that sponsor showcase and there are, I don't know how many vendors. There's a huge ecosystem of companies from tiny, tiny one-man startups through to the IBMs and the Googles and the Microsofts and, and Red, you know, I've yeah. probably missed some, you know, <laughs> yeah. All, all yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's one of the real strengths, I think, of this community that we have so much kind of symbiotic relationship between these things and the NGOs is getting involved as well. So companies like IBM, cloud, all the cloud offerings, you know, are essentially running businesses I'm going to simplify and say they're renting CPUs. And what we're doing as a community is building software that enables end users to run on those rented CPUs. Right. And then to do that, there's all sorts of other components that people need, some of which will be paid products, some of which will be open source. And the way this kind of giant ecosystem works and self-organizes to find ways to pay people salaries to work on this stuff is... It, you know,
3: it's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess twice in the last month or two, I've started to assemble a talk on open source and making the proposition that we're in a really interesting era where not only are the big and small vendors involved in open source, but even vendors that traditionally would have just built their product and sold it are even encouraging their own employees to give back to the open source that they're consuming, which is... It's definitely a change, I think, in the last five to ten years.
2: So we're doing that exactly that in Aqua, and it's kind of my, my role in Aqua. And it's really interesting to see how our kind of enterprise sales folks are recognising the benefits of having offerings in the open source
0: yeah.
2: world and how that complements what we do with paid products. And I think that's just sort of anecdotal evidence, but I'm sure there are dozens of vendors in the yeah. sponsor yeah. showcase. Who are seeing the same effect that they're involved in the community, that they're contributing open source code, and they're also offering paid products, and those two things can coexist.
3: My talk walks through the history of how difficult it was for IBM and other major vendors in the early days. So, like, I'm rolling back to 99, 2000, IBM got involved in Linux, and the first thing is you had to get your legal team to get comfortable with all these crazy open source licenses. And so it's been neat to see in the last 10 plus years, that's work that we don't really think about, but how many lawyers had to be educated and, and understand and understand how companies would divide up their efforts between a paid product and open source and getting comfortable with how contributors would navigate those waters of, I write code for my company and I write code that's under the Apache license or some other license. So, yeah, I I think we're at a great point of culmination of a lot of really hard work that companies did to to make the enterprise comfortable with open source contribution, consumption. That's really created a golden age. A lot of companies contributing. It's not just the big names. It's not just independents. It's everyone.
2: Mm, And quite often it's end-user companies as well. You look at something like the Envoy project coming out of Lyft. Yeah, um, You know, it's... really interesting to see not just the open source contributions from the the cloud providers it's also the end user community saying well actually to make this work we needed to build this thing and this thing is not core to our business so why not contribute it back and uh, we've seen some great projects come out through that mechanism
1: it's fascinating. From a developer's perspective, participating in these projects, it's a great way to be visible to the community and the ecosystem. Whereas if you were just in a company working on a product that was proprietary, no one may know what you're doing, but now you're actually able to shine and let the whole community see your work.
2: I absolutely love that. The fact yeah. that people are working under their own identities in GitHub or whatever you know source control they're using, and it's their reputation, not just their companies. I think that's... Yeah. Huge benefit. People can really shine through their own work. It's, it's yeah, fantastic.
3: yeah. I, I, you know, I've been the benefactor of being very active in open source the last four years, and getting connected to people all over the world, all across the ecosystem. And interestingly, at IBM, we're actually talking to HR about recognizing the role of an open source contributor as its own kind of job description so that we deal with that correctly, knowing that it's an actual value to a career growth path to be an open source committer or contributor. Even to have companies recognize that that's valuable for a person's career or for their, like you said, just their exposure and visibility to the broader ecosystem
2: contributors can come to an event like this and we sort of know each other on the internet it's a way to kind of connect with people you definitely see people who you know maybe they're at their first event but they have people to connect with who they've chatted with on slack or or, you know reviewed each other's prs or whatever they've done it's 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 nice from a social connection point of view yeah
3: absolutely
1: how do most people get involved? Or would you say are some paths that people who maybe are not involved in open source and want to get involved? Are there paths of least resistance that they could use to get involved with projects?
2: I was going to uh, mention the the keynotes that we saw this morning from uh, Lucas and Nikita, yeah. who are both, they just shared their story of how they got involved. And, you know, it can be a little bit intimidating, I think, if you're, looking at a giant project and they both shared how they found the first thing that they particularly wanted to contribute to and how that kind of grew into greater and greater things and and uh, how they were able to connect with the right people in the community through there's actually some really great contributor documentation particularly from kubernetes and, and, and the work that people like paris you know do to Make that a really welcoming contributor. Yeah,
3: definitely. This community has the contributor experience SIG, uh, which mm. they work very hard to make sure those docs are, are well written. That that it's an inviting place for new contributors. Um, yeah, yeah,
2: They have events that are yeah, really, yeah. you know, you're encouraged to come as a new uh, as a new potential contributor, both in physical events like this, but also you know online regular meetings, so there's a lot of effort going into making it easy to get involved.
3: Yeah, and and that definitely covers this community. I gave a talk recently, kind of my own story, of when I was asked by IBM to jump into the Docker community and just figure out a way to start contributing and get involved. And so I recently kind of told that story, but interweaved it with practical advice on how do I find an issue to work on, how do I... Find out where a community hangs out. So, again, the CNCF and Kubernetes project have done a great job of giving you all that in a very nicely packaged way. But if you're interested in other projects, you know, there's usually a standard kind of set of steps that I shared. Go read through the contributor's guide. Figure out where they hang out. Is it a Slack channel? What are their processes? And and so as open source becomes more acceptable for the normal developer just to jump in and find a way to contribute, I think we'll find better processes and docs across lots of projects, not just Kubernetes or CNCF. But it definitely can be daunting, but I I think it's awesome when people like Lucas and Nikita did share their stories because then people are like, oh, okay, now I see you You had an idea, you took step one, and it just kind of led on from there.
1: The community seems very accepting and wants the engagement, so people should really just take the initiative and try to get involved.
3: Absolutely, yeah. Definitely the community represented here, you're going to almost 100% of the time find friendly, welcoming people who are going to encourage you to make your contribution, help you figure out the steps. There can be some difficult communities to work in out there in the wide world of open source, but I, I think this community has done a really good job of trying to be very welcoming.
1: What are you excited about? What's on the horizon? What do you see happening next?
2: I think before we get too carried away with thinking about the future future, a lot of this stuff is still cutting edge for most businesses out there. So I can probably get carried away and talk about some really exciting things that I think will happen in the future. But there are plenty of people out there developing business applications who need a platform on which to run this new cloud native thing even seeing that roll out even more broadly and becoming even more mainstream is big step. And we're still in the process of that.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's been enlightening for me to attend in the past year more non-cloud conferences, just sort of general developer events. You've got enterprise Java developers, you've got Python data scientists. And to see, just like what you're saying, Liz, that We live on this leading edge, and we expect everyone's using Kubernetes and containers. And it's almost jarring to talk to these folks and realize, you know, a lot of people are just now finding out that this whole world exists, and they're trying to figure out where they fit into it and how they use it. You know, I like some of Kelsey Hightower's tweets in the last year that Kubernetes is not the end goal. Yeah. It's what are we going to build on this to make it even easier for this big wave behind, you know, we're this small early wave, and we're thousands and thousands of people, but there's you know, hundreds of thousands of developers who maybe aren't even to where we are yet. Um, so I think I think there's a lot of work in just the tooling and platforms that will, not, not that we want to keep building abstraction upon abstraction, but to simplify the experience to really it's just a platform and I put my application there and it's secure and it runs and it's highly available. And it's
2: yeah I I think particularly think two areas that strike me as quite active at the moment are security that that might be my own sort of bias towards it but I see a lot of activity yes. around just trying to make it easier for people to run securely out of the box you know you mentioned service meshes and getting yeah. things like secure tls connections between services without people having to write any code to do that is it's a big step yeah, it's you know? easy. and work around things like the identities associated with people and components uh, making that much easier that's a big area and the other area that i see quite a lot of activity right now is storage because mm, yeah. you know we talk a lot in the container world about stateless apps and honestly those state somewhere we're just pushing that problem somewhere else <laughs> right so, uh, yeah, there's some, some good work going on in a variety of projects to yeah. address storage, and quite often the problems vary from you know, scenario to scenario. There is no one-size-fits-all storage solution, in my opinion, and uh, yeah. I think we'll will see a lot of making that easier and making it easier to integrate your cloud-native solutions with an appropriate storage solution.
1: What do developers need to hear in, in 2019
2: about... <laughs> about uh... SIGBIKE.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's true. Liz and I have schemed to find ways to ride bikes at at events. Although I missed out on the the Barcelona ride a few days ago, um, but we did a DockerCon ride a month ago, and uh, yeah, we think there's a burgeoning need for a cycling community within cncf kubernetes absolutely yeah
2: yeah Yeah. Yeah. i've definitely found a few more cyclists and i keep finding people on twitter who
3: yeah yeah once once you start posting pictures yeah it's like oh yeah well i am too next time tell me yeah
1: that sounds like a really good idea because it's too easy as a developer just to sit behind your computer and not realize how vegetative you're being uh because you you are you know being very active but you're not moving per se Yeah.
2: yeah Yeah, that's a huge focus for me personally to keep myself fit and healthy.
3: Yeah. For me, the intersection with my work, doing talks or writing blog posts, it's very easy to get stuck. I work from home when I'm not traveling and just walking out the door, getting on my bike, doing 30, 40 minutes to an hour of ride. It's usually when I step away from the computer that I get my good ideas.
2: Absolutely have the same thing. When you're struggling with a problem, if I get frustrated with something and I can't, deal you know, whatever yeah. it is, usually I've gone for a bike ride or I've gone for a run or even just gone for a walk. And yeah. it's when you're not thinking about it, that the solution just pops into your
3: head. So SIG bike is not just exercise. It's a problem solving tool yeah. for developers.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Please, if you want to check out another episode, go to developer.ibm.com slash podcasts, we are, of course, on Spotify, on iTunes, on Stitcher, and on a bunch of other platforms. If you want links to those platforms, go to developer.ibm.com slash podcasts. And if you want to chat with us, grab us on a bicycle and a tech conference, or just, you know, chat with us on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Juice10. And of course, my fabulous co-host Twitter handle, The Chance, is at luke shantz and
1: you can find liz at liz rice on twitter
0: and phil you can find
1: at estesp on twitter
0: excellent if you want to check out what they're working on we have links to that in the show notes see you on the next episode have a great day